This evening I'd like to talk about patience. And I think a good place to start this talk is with a question. How many of you have a perfect life? With families that never argue, are never in conflict, with relationships that are always harmonious, with work that is always enjoyable and rich, with colleagues who are always congenial. How many of you have got a body that is totally reliable, that never breaks down, never ages, a mind that is always cooperative, you're happy to be with, a heart that's always peaceful, any takers? No one in the history of humanity has been successful at arranging their world in a way in which they have only the pleasant. And we are not going to be the first. Shantideva once said, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? This is our question. This could be our koan for the week. What do we do with a life that doesn't go away? It's certainly possible to have too little patience. I think it's never possible to have too much patience. My experience is that, I think this is probably shared, that at so many turns in our life that we meet situations both internally and externally that do seem to test the limits of what patience we have. There are countless moments in our life where we meet people and events and experiences that do indeed test the limits of our tolerance. Think of the countless moments in our day, in any day of our life where we meet states and experiences and thoughts and feelings that seem to ask for a depth of patience that doesn't always feel accessible to us. In all of these areas that I mentioned, in our families, in our work, in our bodies, our minds, our practice, we will continue to meet moments not only of joy and happiness, But moments, too, of disappointment and frustration, times when we feel that we stumble, the whole range of difficulties, the full catastrophe, where what is being, something is being asked of us. And we're being asked to call upon our inner resources to be with what is. And the alternative is to resist, it's to struggle, it's to become disheartened, it's to fall into despair. 
And I think what is especially asked of us, perhaps one of the most noble qualities that is really asked of us, is patience. And we can't count the number of moments that in the present and the future will ask us to find that response. In Pali, the word for patience is kanti. And patience is one of the ten of the great perfections of Hermes, the noble qualities of heart and mind that, that are part of the culture and the practice of the bodhisattva. Patience is one of the qualities that's said to be a forerunner to compassion. It is also one of the qualities that's said to be most necessary in our path if we're to find peace and stillness in the swirls and the currents of our hearts and our lives. Now, patience is not a quality that we develop in always in seclusion or in isolation. We could all sit on the top of a Himalayan mountain, removed from the world, undisturbed, and delude ourselves into believing we've perfected patience. I did that for quite some time. Patience is a quality of relationship. It is a path. It is something that is cultivated, that is brought into being. Patience is about the way, what we cultivate as we interface with this world, which is so often agitated, so often discontented, at times disappointing, at times frightening. Patience is that way of meeting this world with all the people and the events outwardly, and it is a way of meeting to our inner world, our own responses of fear and frustration and anger and craving and aversion, all of those states of mind and heart that are hard to be with, hard to bear. It is really this quality of patience that allows us to soften, to stay connected, and to be intimate with life fully. Uh, The near enemy or the shadow side of patience, I would say, is endurance. When I was young, my mother had this verse she would repeat endlessly to me. She would say, patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can, often found in women, seldom found in man. I think this was supposed to be some encouragement to me that I was supposed I was I was supposed to be patient. Everybody else around me could be impatient, but I could be patient. But I think she was often talking about endurance. And she was often talking about a sort of stoicism, even a kind of uh, almost a resignation in which there was a, a kind of a surrender of relatedness, and a surrender of participation in a way. There's a a line I came across by someone called Plumer. He said, 
There is as much difference between genuine patience and sullen endurance as between the smile of love and the malicious gnashing of teeth. Hmm? A patience is not a passive submission to abuse or to exploitation or to pain, but is more the inner steadfastness and the inner commitment to not to abandon anyone or anything inwardly or outwardly. It is that steadfastness and commitment to explore what it means to live with a calm abiding in the midst of all things. The Dalai Lama speaks of patience as the deep ability and the willingness to remain firm and steadfast in the face of adversity. And I often feel that our ability to do that very much follows on the heels of our willingness. That without willingness, we don't find the ability that our willingness to turn towards adversity rather than abandon it is actually the place where we find the capacity and the ability. And born of that capacity and the willingness to be upright and firm and steadfast rather than being overwhelmed, I think it does come, the calmness and the peace of our hearts and minds that nothing can shatter. Most of us are not born patient. And it's not a quality, I must say, that a few, you know, particularly enlightened, spiritually blessed and fortunate few possess, and everybody else is somehow deprived. Patience, as I mentioned, is a path of cultivation. And most of us are not lacking in moments and situations which offer us the opportunity to cultivate patience. So where do we do this? Where do we do this cultivation of patience? We do it in the midst of impatience. Not outside of impatience, but in the midst of it. And I think it is probably not difficult for any of us to really explain in endless, endless graphic detail the people and the events in our lives who we believe cause us to be impatient. Nor is it difficult for us to explain in equally endless detail, because we're doing it to ourselves all the time, the events in our own minds, in our own in our own hearts, that we feel are a source of our impatience. It becomes evident how unfortunate this tendency is to continually try and impose a timetable we have mostly constructed in our own mind upon life. And then feel, again endlessly, offended and angry when our life doesn't obey or conform to this timetable we have constructed. We see this so often. You know, we can be with a friend who has been through a difficult time. 
maybe made some bad choices. And we listen deeply for a time, full of empathy, you know, full of compassion. And then we may begin to notice how our impatience has begun to creep in. You know, looking at our watch, you know, like, like maybe they've received the ration, their ration of our compassion. And now they should change. You know, now they should get over it. Now they should get themselves together. Some of you have probably noticed this when you have an illness or something amiss in your body that doesn't seem to have an end. Again, how we can be present and patient for a time, and then, you know, we have this thought, it is enough already. This should just disappear. And as we may have sat even today, you know, with dullness or restlessness for a while. And, you know, maybe you started out this morning really patient and really committed to being patient. I know I need to be patient with this. You know, and then lunchtime rolls around, and why isn't this over? You know, why hasn't this gone? I I was patient, you know, and there should now be some outcome of that patience. And we see how our patience begins to disappear. You know, when I first started practicing full of my grandiose ambitions to immediately be initiated into many tantric practices, and I had a teacher, you know, who to me seemed like a bit of a plod, you know, and he would say, you know, look at me puzzled and say, no, you know, you need to do a year or two reflection on motivation, you know, a year or two reflection on you know, right intention and on compassion and connectedness. And I think, well, I'll do it for a while. And I think, how long? And that's the question for us. How long? How long can we be patient with what is? How long can we stay present with something rather than abandon it? How long can we take our seat in this life that doesn't go away. At times, I think what we see is that our patience has hidden conditions, and not always so hidden. (laughs) But one of those hidden conditions is a demand for change, for something to begin that hasn't yet begun, or for something to end that has begun. And when our conditions and our timetables are not met, what is revealed to us is how much craving and aversion underlies what patience we have. And I think it's a really useful reflection to think, what would it be like, what would be asked of us, what would be asked of us to meet our life without conditions and timetables? What would be asked of us to meet frustration and difficulty and disappointment without craving or aversion? I continue in my life, as I'm sure I've mentioned to you before, you know, to spend a lot of time on airplanes, looking at these airplane maps of the little plane that moves through the sky. You know, and it's amazing how many hours you can spend... (laughs) watching that little plane moving through the sky. 
And, you know, how often I see myself, you know, it's that much closer, it's that much closer. Maybe if I don't look for a few minutes, I'll be really that much closer. And it doesn't ever seem to hardly move. And, you know, last year I had this experience flying back from South Africa, and my worst nightmare came true is that my plane stopped, (laughs) suspended over the Sahara Desert. And I thought, well, what would it really be like? It's to say, this is it. You know, this is it. What would be asked of me? In the path of the bodhisattva, the path of compassion, for patience and forbearance or tolerance are very closely linked. Shantideva, as I mentioned, Earlier this morning, says there is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So through becoming acquainted with small harms and difficulties, I shall patiently learn to embrace the great harms. A patience is born of our willingness to be intimate, as I said, with all the moments that we are impatient to turn towards what we're prone to abandon. And then we begin to understand that the source of our impatience is actually not in all of the events and the people and the situations that we meet in our life, that the source of our impatience truly is in our own minds and hearts. And impatience is suffering. Impatience, I think, in reality, is one of our greatest sufferings because it really does little but mar our capacity to live where we are and to be with what is and to find peace and stillness in the midst of all things. In truth, we are never happy when we are impatient. Now, this is not some fine, fanciful theory You know, you can test it out for yourself today in the lunch line. Could you stand upright behind the person in front of you? You find yourself peeking over their shoulder, wondering, you know, how much longer they're going to be. When you get seemingly stuck behind the slowest walker on the retreat, or waiting for the person who's taking the most mindful shower in the world. (laughs) Then we see, when we are impatient, what is the nature of that? Well, mostly we're agitated and we're anxious. And we find out of that agitation and anxiety, we find ourselves becoming aversive and resistant to where we are. uh, Resistant to the simple truth of that moment. And there is no peace in that aversion and resistance. So we learn to practice being patient with anxiety and agitation and learning to be patient with resistance and agitation will, with patience, lead us to be free from anxiety and agitation. And cultivating, having the willingness to cultivate patience in those mid, in the midst of those moments of agitation is like offering to ourselves a gift of happiness and stillness. 
instead of offering to ourselves a gift of agitation or the the endless agitation of always trying to alter our inner and outer world to satisfy our cravings or to subdue our aversions and our fears. Cultivating patience in that moment really means being upright in the midst of things instead of tilting forward into the next moment waiting for the ending or the beginning that we've so pinned our happiness upon. Learning to be upright means learning to be really curious and really interested in the fabric of impatience itself. To look at this cloth of impatience. If we are prone to surrender that curiosity and interest in the nature of impatience, then often what we find ourselves doing is that we have surrendered ourselves to a life of waiting. And I'm sure that each of us could write our own life poems and our own meditation poems about waiting. How often we have waited in our life. Waiting to be somebody, waiting for the right person to come into our life, waiting to get to where we really want to be, waiting for the current difficulty in our life to be over. We wait for happiness. We wait for love. You know, we wait for the sun to come out and the snow to melt. You know, we wait for our aching back to feel better, for our dullness to disappear. We might have waited for the right teacher to come along. How many times have we waited today? We wait for the sitting to end, for lunch to come. Then we're waiting waiting for the walking to end. And oh, we wait for the bell to ring. We can find ourselves waiting often in this life as if we are waiting for the perfect moment to be present in. In the prison system in England, they talk about this phenomenon called gate fever, which is often what can happen with prisoners in the, in the few days before they're due to be released. That often they become so agitated and so anticipating what lies on the other side of the wall, so imagining, so fantasizing, fantasizing about what lies on, upon the other side of the wall that they quite forget where they are. And it is often where they kind of lay down their mindfulness. And they say in prisons that this is a time when prisoners are often in the greatest danger because they are not where they are. I think we can sense in all the moments in our life where we're waiting, really what we're living is a kind of suspended, uh, we're suspended in a kind of postponed life. A life, the life that we want, that has yet to begin or yet to appear. And what are the moments, those moments of waiting, really like? Are they peaceful? Are they calm? Are they complete? Mostly not. Mostly we see when our bodies and our minds and our hearts are being inclined to what is not here. 
that really what we're saying that what is here is just not good enough. That it's just not worth our attention. It's not worth our connection. And yet that resistance and the aversion we feel out of that kind of assumption or that sort of value judgment, that aversion and resistance, they are the ingredients of unhappiness. There's part of a poem by Mary Oliver. She says, when it's over, I want to say all my life that I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I think in any of the moments when we find ourselves waiting, it's very useful to bring into that waiting space the koan, the question of what am I really saving myself for? You know, are we preparing so that when that perfect moment arrives, we can be fully present in it? Are we preparing so we can live wholly and fully in some future and better moment? You know, are we saving our mindfulness? Are we saving our capacity for connectedness, our our compassion, so that we can be present in this ideal moment when it does appear, as if we have a limited ration? You know, that we somehow must carefully hoard and conserve in case they run out. I read a thesis years ago done by a professor at Harvard, and his thesis was on exploring what it is that really made a happy person happy. (laughs) So he interviewed all these different kinds of people, people who were very kind of successful and people were very humble, people who had much and people who had little, people had very, you know, great prestige and people who were very, you know, very invisible in a way. And, and he discovered that the happiest people had, had nothing to do with any of that, that the happiest people were those people who were willing and able to live their lives most wholeheartedly. Those the people who were most willing to be present wherever and whatever they were doing. What they were doing was irrelevant. But the key to their happiness, it seemed, was their devotion. Their devotion to being where they were, to living the moment they were in. And certainly in this thesis he discovered that the people who were happy were not those who were waiting. <coughs> So when does impatience arise? Well, it doesn't hardly ever arise, we can be sure, in the variety of moments when all our array of needs and wants are fulfilled. You know, we're never impatient then, are we? Impatience doesn't arise when we feel satisfied and flattered and reassured. Mostly impatient 
Impatience arises in relationship to what we deem to be unpleasant, difficult, or threatening. And here again, you know, we may have a little journey into patience for a time, as long as whatever it is that's unpleasant or difficult just doesn't last too long. You know, we can be patient with two shuffles from the person sitting beside us, but four is too, too many. You know, we can be patient with ourselves for a little while, you know, with some repetitive story or song, you know, for one or two runs, and then it's enough. And then we see how, with the impatience arising, the, the, the cellular effects of it are very visible. We begin to resist. When we begin to resist, we begin to tighten. We begin to contract. When our aversion starts to take over, then we start to blame. And when our aversion is kind of really, and our resistance is really in full swing, we start to disconnect. And out of that aversion and resistance, there comes this very familiar song, I can't bear this. I can't bear this. Now, forbearance, which I think is a wonderful word, forbearance really asks us to look at all those places where we say, this is unbearable, or I can't bear this. Because that's where we ask ourselves, what does it mean to remain steadfast, to stay present in that moment, to be very interested in that edge of when we start to disconnect and when we start to abandon? What does it mean in those moments to open instead of tighten and in opening not be overwhelmed? Now, you know, we might think here, okay, you know, I'm going to really apply that in the really big, difficult moments in my life. But actually, the small stuff really matters here. All those moments in the lunch line, the moments we're recoiling from our own bodies, all those moments when we're pushing away the thoughts we don't like, when we're feeling annoyed with the person who irritates us. These moments are the classroom of forbearance. The classroom where we learn to stay present instead of abandoning. And those small moments are also the classroom of equanimity, of stillness and of peace. Now, forbearance doesn't mean suffering. You know, bowing to something is not the same as bowing down to it. You know, certainly I think the very worst thing I, somebody ever said to me in an interview was when someone told me that mindfulness had helped her to bear an unbearable, unacceptable relationship. That is where we can get confused. Where we think we're being patient with something, we're cultivating, cultivating forbearance, but we've slipped into that near enemy of endurance or that shadow side of endurance. Bowing to the difficult means bringing respect to that moment. And it means treasuring dignity 
And if suffering needs courage and it needs clear action, then that is what it needs. But if suffering cannot be altered, and there are times in our life where it is truly beyond our ability to alter the moment of difficulty we are in, then if suffering in that moment cannot be altered, it is our hearts that need altering. And then that is where we need compassion and patience and wise attention. In Zen, there's a saying that all Buddhas turn the wheel of the Dharma in the midst of the most fierce flames. And, you know, I would encourage you or invite you to visualize a mandala, to visualize a a mandala of life that can be a mandala of suffering, and it can also be a mandala of a circle of stillness and freedom. And imagine yourself taking your seat in the very center of that mandala and that you are sitting in the circle of all the events and the people and the thoughts and the sounds and the feelings that are part of each of our lives. Imagine yourself sitting in the circle surrounded by all these events and situations and people, that which is lovely and that which is not so lovely that which is difficult, that which is delightful, that which is painful and that which is pleasant, and appreciate and realize that we are truly not in control of that circle of events. That these events arise and they pass, born of conditions. And imagine around that first circle there is a second circle, And in that second circle, there lives all of the anger and the rage and the ill will and the blame and the fear and the impatience that it's possible for all of us to feel and experience. And sense that there really is no direct link between that first circle of events and conditions and this second circle of fear and anger and rage and suspicion The second circle is optional. When we move from that seat in the center of the mandalas, then in a way we become part of the wheel of suffering. When we move into that outer circle, we become part of the wheel of suffering and part of the fuel, the energy that turns that wheel is impatience the force of resistance and craving. Now, what would happen if you don't move? What would happen if you could just stay still, responsive, sensitive, engaged, receptive, but steadfast in the midst of the difficult and in the midst of the painful, if if we knew what it meant to bear with, Now, bearing with the unpleasant and the difficult doesn't necessarily make it different than it is. It can stay unpleasant and difficult. Forbearance is certainly not some kind of magic wand that brings the unpleasant to an end, but we are changed because we learn what it means not to compound 
the difficulty and the suffering of the moment, when we are really able through forbearance to withdraw our demands and withdraw our insistence that the moment must be different than it is, then in a very real way, we, we liberate not only ourselves, but we liberate the world from aversion and insistence. And somehow in that liberation, we deepen. This is why forbearance is part of compassion. Withdrawing insistence that something must be other than it is. We learn we can be upright and we can listen to the cries of the world. Just as we can become frustrated and impatient with that which is external, the people and the situations that we meet in our life, of course we can become equally deeply impatient with ourselves. With our own inner spectrum of physical and emotional and psychological events, the spectrum that we meet in every moment of our lives and our practice. Now, the first step of mindfulness, the first step of peace, really is to open unconditionally to what is, to to bring a clear and steadfast attention to what is. Mindfulness, by its nature, is a surrender of the flight mechanism. Mindfulness by its, its nature is a, a surrender of that inclination to abandon and disconnect. So by learning, by learning to bring this mindful attention to what is, in a way we surrender the aversion. And we also surrender that inclination to follow the path of craving of trying to arrange endlessly our inner and outer world in accord with our desires. So in this sense, mindfulness, in my understanding, is an embodiment of patience. Just this, just now. Just being with what is, without anticipating its ending, without waiting for something else to begin. Just this, just now. Now, this quality of patience and mindfulness that we learn to bring, develop in our practice, we learn to bring to all of the events in our life. What we bring to the events in our life outwardly, we learn to bring to the events in our inner life. Because we see the part of the impatience with ourself is this idea of should, this, this expectation this insistence that we should be other than we are in this moment. You know, and coming into meditation, you know, I feel like sometimes people find, women find that they're just adding to their portfolios of should. You know, they already had a big enough one when they came here of insistence about how they should be. But suddenly we've got this whole new array of possibilities. You know, now I should be peaceful. You know, now I should be calm. Now I should be serene. Now I should be mindful. Now I should be enlightened. And again with ourselves, you know, we can be patient for a little while. And then again we see 
the insistence that there should be a result of our patience. Then the unpleasant or the adversary should completely dissolve and disappear, be replaced by what we want. Years ago, when I practiced in Thailand, one of the um, expectations, certainly in monasteries in Thailand, is that, you know, as we kind of expect you here, you know, that you come to the Dharma talk in the evening. Now, you may think that we manage to sort of rattle on for hours at a time, but we've got nothing on Thai abbots. You know, so sometimes I would go, you know, I'd be hustled off to the the Dharma talk in the evening, and I would sit, and I would sit, and I would sit, and the talk would go on and on and on. And sometimes, you know, two hours, three hours, this was not unusual. And, of course, it was all in Thai, and I didn't didn't speak a word of Thai, you know, apart from please and thank you, you know. So, you know, it was this really good exercise. What did it mean to be there? You know, was was there something better I was meant to be doing? You know, what, what I should be listening to my own thoughts instead of listening to a talk and tie. You know, what was wrong with actually being there, upright, steadfast, with what is? It was a wonderful exercise in patience. But you, sometimes, do we imagine? Do we really imagine that all the Buddhas and the great teachers and the long-committed yogis, do we really imagine that somehow they had perfectly calm and tranquil lives and you know perfectly serene minds all the time and bodies that gave them no trouble and lives without adversaries? I doubt it. But they may have had and have patience. Now we see the relationship between continuity and impatience. A big relationship between continuity and impatience. The more continuity there is in something, the more ripe it seems to be for impatience to arise. Now, why does that happen? You know, what we see when there's a continuity of dullness or a continuity of agitation or some mental state we don't like. Why does the fabric of patience begin to have holes in it? And I think the explanation is actually very simple. It's because we slide from being mindful of what is happening to being identified with what is happening. And that is where patience disappears. When we slide from being mindful of what is happening to being identified with what is happening. Because when we're identified with what is occurring, we are then defined by what is happening. So instead of being mindful of dullness or mindful of agitation or mindful of pain, suddenly I am dull. I am agitated. I am suffering. We have slid into that identification, and then we are defined by what we have identified with. And that is where our patience disappears. Now, often with that identification, there comes a few new words, well, not new words, but familiar words in our vocabulary. This is going to last forever. Or I am always like this. Or you are always like that. There is no word more guaranteed to sabotage whatever patience we have than this word always. 
when we become identified and defined by what is happening, then we actually find ourselves having aversion for the contents of our own mind, our own body, our own experience, and also not only aversion but also anxiety. What if this never ends? What if it, w- if it really will always be like this? Now, I think it is so useful and so helpful to be able to spot this point, this very critical point, when identification has really begun to appear. And it's not hard to spot it, you know, because we can feel the contraction, we can feel the constrictedness of that definition. But to spot that point when identification really begins to arise, because here we can follow a pathway that leads to more and more anxiety and aversion, or this is also the point where we can bring forbearance, where we can bring patience, where we can bring a calm steadiness. If we don't see the impatience and the identification arising, then once more we get into that limbo of waiting. Oh, I'll just wait for this to be over. You know, or, or perhaps I'll save my mindfulness you know, for when it's over and I have a much better moment to be mindful in. To practice patience, to be steadfast and firm and upright in the face of adversity without being defined by adversity is the place where we really begin to discover a genuine depth of calmness and stillness inwardly in the midst of all of the events of our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And it's where we find compassion to listen to, to receive the cries of the world. It's where we realize, we begin to sense, we find this mind of really absolute trust, of absolute unshakability, where we are not the events. The events are not who we are. The events are the events. And we discover that we can be patient and present and steadfast, in that world of events, really without being defined, without being bound by any of them. There's a few (coughs) lines in the Tao. It said, I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thought you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you live in harmony with the way things are. Compassionate towards yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. We have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
dot org slash donate.